presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. And this is our third in our series that I've entitled Better Than I Deserve. And it's really a second look at, uh, at God's grace. And I've entitled our session today, Mirror, Mirror on the Wall. Anybody remember where that comes from? Snow White, that's right. The uh, Grimm's Fairy Tales. Uh, just some, some great, great stories in, uh, in, in, in Grimm's. And uh, it's, it's talking about the birth of this little girl. It says, uh, when a year had passed, uh, the king married another woman who was beautiful but proud and haughty, and she could not tolerate anyone else who might rival her beauty. She had a magic mirror, and often she stood in front of it, looked at herself and said, Mirror, mirror on the wall, who in this realm is the fairest of all? Then the mirror would answer, You, my queen, are the fairest of all. And of course, uh, as Snow White grew up, by the time she became seven years old, she had uh, grown more and more beautiful. And uh, <clears throat> it said, uh, one day the queen asked her mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall, who in this realm is the fairest of all? The mirror answered, you, my queen, may have beauty quite rare, but Snow White is a thousand times more fair. So, and we know the rest of the story on that one. That was just the, uh, that was the beginning of that. So the question we're sort of asking ourselves today is that when we look into the spiritual mirror, what is it that we see? Uh, we've, uh, we've talked about the fact that, <clears throat> that we sometimes get a real wrong handle on this whole idea of being deserving or what I call deservingness. I'm not sure that's even a a real word, maybe that's one I've just kind of coined, but it comes down to thinking about worth and worthiness and that kind of thing. Uh, worth has to do with the idea of value. Worthy has, uh, W-O-R-T-H-Y, has the idea of meritorious value. That is, it's value, but it's based on something, uh, someone has value or something has value because it's earned or he or she has earned that value. And of course, when we talk about the grace of God, we're talking about unmerited or unearned favor. So the two really don't go together. And unfortunately, uh, even among Christians, uh, as well as certainly in the world at large, there's a great deal of misunderstanding about this whole idea of grace. And so that's the, that's the purpose of our study together. In our session last week, um, we talked about dignity and depravity. That is that when God uh, decided to create the universe and then ultimately on the sixth day create man, that, uh, that when he created man, he created man with great dignity. In fact, uh, if you look at the passage there in the left-hand column of your notes from Genesis chapter 1, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them, notice plural, all the pronouns here are plural, our image, our likeness, so clearly there's, a, there's evidence of the plurality within the Godhead, Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, uh, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So these, this person, uh, actually persons that God was going to create, was going to be someone who would actually serve, as it were, as vice regents over the earth. They would have authority on the earth, authority under, uh, under God's leadership, obviously. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made. And this time, instead of saying it was good, he said what? It's very good. That's right. And so you've got uh, the man and the woman in a pristine setting, uh, a primeval setting, pristine setting, uh, in which uh, it's a perfect environment. Everything's great. The only um, thing that God has said that they cannot do is to eat from uh, the eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, that's what they wind up doing. But before we look at that, <clears throat> we said last week, and we just sort of touched on this, so I just want to talk about it just a little bit more for a minute, that when God created the man and the woman, that he created them in, in his image, what, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, I think as you read the scriptures, you, we learn a number of things. Among those things is that the man and the woman reflected God uh, in that uh, they, had, they certainly had personality. Uh, they had a sense of morality. You can do this, but you can't do this. Uh, clearly, there was spirituality that they had that separated them, certainly from all of the animals that had been created, because uh, while the animals were able to identify with their environment and sense certain things, there are, uh, some scientists say instinctual things and others say no, <clears throat> that they're just learned behaviors, but clearly there are things that the... Uh, that human beings can do, and one of those things that animals can't do, and one of those things is to be in communion with God. So clearly that was one way in which, uh, in which man and woman reflected God. There was, uh, there was relationship, there was language, uh, there were all of those kinds of things in which they reflected the Lord. But they not only reflected God, they also <clears throat> represented God. Yeah, I did spell that right. They, they represented God. That, that is, they were sort of the, uh, the vice regents over the earth. God ultimate, ultimately was the, uh, was the chief authority. But then they were put in charge of things. And in fact, recall, it was the man who was given the task of naming all of the animals. When God puts him in the garden and says, take care of the garden, he doesn't tell him how to do it. Uh, man is able to use his, uh, his mind in order to, uh, to do that. In fact, uh, that's another way in which we reflect God. I guess you could say that's part of, part of the aspect of personality is that, uh, is that we have reason, we're able to, we're able to think. Uh, that's something that animals don't seem to have. Again, there's some discussion about that. Generally, animals... Uh, uh, the things that they do are based on either learned behavior or instinct, whichever uh, school of thought you follow. 
Another way in which the, uh, the man and the woman reflected God was that uh, not only did they have reason, but they had emotion. They were, able to, they were able to feel things, experience things that way. And certainly, another thing that they had was volition. That is, they were able to make choices. Uh, we know one choice that they made was a real bad choice, and it got them and subsequently us in the doghouse as well. And all of these things, uh, we're going to talk about the fall here in just a minute, but all of these things were adversely affected by what happened in Genesis chapter 3 <clears throat> when the woman and the man succumbed to the temptation to eat of the forbidden fruit when they disobeyed God. Because what, we, what we'll see is that the, the man and the woman did not lose uh, the image of God in the sense that they reflected that image, but what happened was that image became marred or distorted. Uh, it's kind of like going to the, uh, well, the, the carnival was just here in town. Thank you, Jesus, I didn't have to go to the carnival. But anyway, the carnival was here in town, and very often in those kinds of things, one of the, one of the things they'll have is a house of mirrors. You go into a house of mirrors, and, you know, you got these mirrors that make you look real skinny. You say, hmm, I like to stand in front of this mirror. Then you got another mirror over here that makes you look real big and say, man, I wouldn't have that thing in my house for anything. <clears throat> Some of them that make you look sort of squatty and do all different kinds of things. But the, the issue is that each of those mirrors, there's distortion. And that's what happened to the image of God. It wasn't obliterated, but it was distorted by sin the way we think, the way we use our emotions, the way we feel, the choices that we make, all of those things are adversely affected by sin, as we shall see. What we did lose completely was the ability to represent God because we fell uh, through Adam into sin. That was totally lost. It is interesting to note that as believers and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but maybe by doing that you'll kind of see the direction that we're going. One of the things that, uh, that God does in the new creation when He brings us to faith in Christ is we are gradually transformed into whose image? The image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that image is being restored. This, this distorted image that we have now is being restored in Christ and our ability to represent God is restored in Christ because one of the things that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he speaks of believers, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, what does an ambassador do? Well, the ambassador represents the, uh, the head of, uh, of the nation. And so, you see, in Christ... All of this is being restored. Now, it won't be restored perfectly in this life, and we'll talk about that here in just a minute. Now, let's look at Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to read all of this because this is what we did uh, last week. But I want us to see how the fall occurred. Genesis 3, beginning at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also uh, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. See, he wasn't off somewhere playing pool or playing golf or doing something like that and came home and said, oh, baby, I can't believe you did that. No, the Bible says he was right there with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. 
So they sewed fig leaves together <clears throat> and made coverings for themselves. So here we see that innocence is gone, uh, that all of a sudden guilt appears on the scene, and as a result of that guilt there is shame. And in order to hide their shame, what do they do? They make these coverings, and that's what we do. We hide from God. <clears throat> and, of course, that's what they do. Then the man and his wife heard this, the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Notice they didn't come out and say, Oh, God, we have sinned. We have really screwed up. Well, I know you told us not to eat of that tree, but we did it anyway. Please be merciful. They didn't do anything like that. Do the same thing we do. They hid, and it was God who took the initiative and came looking for them, just as God has to take the initiative today if we are going to know Him. He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then, of course, what happens next is God says, you know, how do you know all this? Did you eat of that, did you eat of that fruit? And in verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here with me. Notice here's a double shift. He's shifting the blame. Some people just miss it, but he's, clearly he's shifting the blame to the woman. It was, you know, she's the one who got the fruit and she gave it to me. But ultimately, where does he shift the blame? To God. It was the woman that you gave me. Did I ask for her? You know, I was, there I was naming animals, and I was real tired that afternoon. I lay down, take a nap, Next thing I know, I wake up and I got a scar on my side. I can touch my sides and obviously there's something missing on this one side here. There's this gorgeous thing next to me. You know, it was really great to have her around, but I didn't ask for her. It was the woman that you gave me. And then, of course, God begins to pronounce what's going to happen as a result of their disobedience. In verse 14, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. <clears throat> he, that is the offspring of the woman, will crush your head, serpent, and you, serpent, will strike his heel. That's a first reference to the Messiah. So how do you know that? It clearly is not apparent when you read that. I mean, the average person reading this would say, would never say that's what that means. The reason we know that's what it means is because the Bible is a book of unfolding revelation. And the more we read, the more we come to realize that this, when God said this, He was talking about the Lord Jesus who would come millennia from this time. And when He came, when He went to the cross, that would be the old enemy attacking Him, striking at His heel, trying to do away with Him. But when He died on the cross, what did He do? He crushed the enemy. He overcame the enemy. He overcame the evil one. And of course, in verse 17, to Adam he said, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. What does that mean? He's going to die. And in fact, he makes it real clear, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So <clears throat> here we see how the innocent, the formerly innocent, have fallen. Sin has entered in, and as a result of sin, uh, death ensues. There is, uh, there is spiritual death that happens right then. Remember, God had said 
Uh, back in chapter 2, he said, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will die. Now, did they die physically on that day? No, they didn't. So apparently God was talking about the fact that they would die spiritually. But we know that corruption began to set in, uh, that certainly at that point they were mortal, and several hundred years from then, guess what happened to Adam? He died, just as he died physically. Now, what does all of that mean for us? This, that's, that's essentially what we talked about last week. You see, there are real repercussions for all of humanity because of what happened here. Notice in the, uh, again, the left-hand column of your notes, that passage from Genesis chapter 5, it says, When God created man, He created him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and when they were created, He called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in what? His own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. Now, why would the Bible express it that way? Well, I think the reason is, is because when, when God created the man initially in his own likeness, he's perfect in every way. But now there's another component involved with the man, and that is there's this sinful nature that man now has that comes from Adam's sin, and when Seth was born, right along with Seth came this sinful nature. Remember, uh, David wrote about that in the Psalms when he says, I was conceived in sin. That doesn't mean that sex and marriage is sin. Just the opposite. God has blessed that. But he says, when I was conceived, I was sinful. It's like when the egg and the sperm came together, not only was all of this potential there, to reflect God, but also that that stuff was there, that sinful stuff, that sinful nature, and what was born of that, that little embryo that formed and grew and eventually was born, uh, was a sinful human being. Now, <clears throat> notice the passage from Romans 5, because this, this bears on all of this. Paul comments... Uh, the book of Romans is really about, is a treatise on salvation. And Paul begins by indicting the entire world, Jew, Gentile alike, that we're all under sin, that we've all got the same problem. And, uh, and then in Romans chapter 5, he begins to talk about two heads. He talks about Adam, and he talks about Christ. And he talks about, and he, com he compares and he contrasts Adam with Christ. Adam was the, was the head of the, of the first, as it were, uh, human race. And Christ is the head of another race that's come along, a, a race of his own people. Now we still, you know, we're uh, human beings, we're still uh, Americans or whatever we are. But when Christ saves us, something happens to us. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5. Notice what he says beginning at verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man... Now, who's the one man through whom sin entered the world? That's Adam. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin... We know that death came as a result of that. That's what God had promised. 
And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the fact that Adam has passed on something to us. Certainly, Adam has passed on the ability to reason and the ability to feel and the ability to make certain choices, uh, the ability of language, uh, the ability to have relationships with other people. But there's something else that was passed on too. And that was this sinful nature. Uh, we all either know or have heard of people who perhaps uh, have gone to the hospital for some sort of surgery and at the hospital uh, required a transfusion and in the transfusion were given some sort of uh, some blood that had a disease in it, uh, perhaps HIV or something like that. And then what happens is that HIV gets in that person's body and if they don't realize that it's in there, certainly they can pass that along to a sexual partner. Uh, if this person, if, if in, the, in this case, if in my illustration, if it were a woman and ultimately she, had, uh, she gave birth to a child, then there's a real good possibility that that child would have that same virus running in its blood. Is that the child's fault? No, that's just something that was passed on. You see, that's what happened with Adam. This sin nature is passed on to us. Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, and, uh, and when he wrote, when he wrote those things that are in there, he was writing them not only for that generation, but he was writing for our generation as well. Now, I wasn't there when he wrote that. I didn't have any sort of input in that, and yet the things that he wrote, he wrote for me as well. And you see, that's the, that's the argument that Paul is making here, is that, the, that Adam was the, is the head of the, of the human race. Christ is the head of a, of a new creation. And there are some, some similarities, and clearly there are some differences as well. He goes on to say, he says, sin is not taken into account where there is no law. In other words, the reason that Adam died was, um, yeah, the reason that he died uh, ultimately was because God had said, don't do what? Don't eat of this fruit that's in the tree. So when Adam ate that, what did he do? He broke God's law. He transgressed the law. He stepped across a known law, and as a result of that, he died. He died spiritually. Ultimately, he died physically. But notice Paul, what Paul says. He says, Sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Now remember, it was Moses who was given the law there at Sinai. The Ten Commandments and all the stuff. He said, okay, now up until that point, there really was no law, and yet folks were dying between the time Adam you know, came into being and the time Moses came along. So... If there was no law, really, how do you explain the fact that these people were dying? He said, well, the reason they were dying is because they inherited this sinful nature through Adam. See, that's the argument that he's making. Verse 15, he said, For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Notice he's beginning to make a contrast now. For if by the trespass of the one man, that is Adam, death reigned through that one man, 
how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, that is, all who were in Adam's race, and that would include whom? All of us. That's right. Just as through his one act of disobedience, all of us in this race were made disobedient, uh, were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, that's a reference to Christ, His perfect obedience. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. That is, those who are in the new creation. And that's what we're, we're going to... Now, don't fret. We're going to be talking about this for the next couple of weeks or so. Now, let's just do a little quickie overview of one thing. Notice I put in your notes there, uh, man is the image of God and... We've talked about that a little bit already, but I want to uh, make a couple of other points. When you think about the image of God, we're thinking about all these things we were talking about before, but there are several views of the image of God. One is what I like to call the primeval view. Now, these are my words. These are not Bible words. The primeval view. This is what we, this is what we saw in Genesis uh, chapter 1 and 2. This is when the man and the woman were in the garden in their innocence. This was prior to the fall. Then we see the perverted view. And by the perverted view, what I, I'm talking about what happened in Genesis chapter 3. And that is that the, the man and the woman uh, did not entirely lose the image of God, but that image became marred or distorted because of sin. Now, for those of us who know Christ, those who come to faith in Christ, what we see there is the progressing, uh, the progressing image of God. And notice the passage I put in your notes there from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says, and we, the we obviously Paul is writing to believers, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness. Whose likeness? The likeness of Christ with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So after God saves us, what happens is we began to progress. We began to be transformed. Incidentally, that word uh, for transform there is the word from which we derive our word metamorphosis. Meta What's a metamorphosis? Yeah, it's a change. What, when you think of metamorphosis, what uh, immediately, what image comes to mind? A butterfly or a moth or something like that. You got this little... You got this little crawly, you got this fuzzy bug that's crawling all over the place, finally crawls up on a limb, and before long, you know, eats the vegetation, spins a little thing around himself, turns into a pupa, and if you keep watching long enough, it looks like, looks like man, there's nothing there, and then all of a sudden one day that thing begins to wiggle a little bit, and then it splits open, and the next thing you know, this beautiful monarch butterfly comes out of there. It's a change. The word transform in that verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18, is the word from which we derive our word metamorphosis, that we are being changed, that we are being changed from the ugly little bugs that we are 
into something beautiful like a monarch butterfly. That's the, uh, that's the, that's the image that's being made there. And incidentally, I'll give you a little freebie right here. <clears throat> uh, one of the things that gives the butterfly strength as he breaks forth from the pupa is the struggle that it takes to get out. In other words, if you got a little pupa and you start seeing that thing wiggle, you say, boy, that rascal sure is having a tough time getting out. I think I'll help him. And you get your exacto knife and you put you real careful so you don't injure anything inside, but you slit that thing open. The butterfly will emerge, but the butterfly will soon die because its wings will not develop. One of the things that causes the wings to develop the way that they do is the struggle getting out of that little cocoon. <clears throat> by, by struggling, what it does is it pumps those juices down into the wings so that when the butterfly emerges, it has the strength to fly. And see, I, I think that's true of us in this life, is that we are being changed and we run into problems and difficulties all the time and we're thinking, boy, sure would be nice if somebody just get out the exacto knife and <coughs> do this and you know, I'm out of this and life would be a lot simpler. But I think through the illustration, God is telling us one of the ways that we, we grow in our strength and in our trust for Him is, is through those kind of struggles. There's a perfected image one day. Uh, guess, when, <clears throat> guess when that will be? Yeah, it won't be tomorrow unless you were with Jesus tomorrow. It'll be when we're with the Lord. Notice the passage from 1 John 3, 2. It says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, the referent to He is whom? Christ. When He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. One of these days we're going to be just exactly like Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be 33 and have beards. But it does mean that in terms of our character that we're going to be like Him, that we're going to have all of those character qualities. Now again, that's not going to happen in this life. But when our, when our new spirit, our, our saved spirit one day is joined with our resurrected body and we are in the presence of the Lord Himself, that will be perfect then. We will be exactly like our Savior. And that's a, that's a good thing to look for. I think, uh, I think one of the purposes of life's trials is to make us look forward to that time when we are with Him. Not to the point where we're ready to put a pistol in our mouths and say, let's get there this afternoon. But the point is, is that as we struggle, we say, you know, this life is not all there is. And there is something coming that is better. And we begin to long for that. Paul talked about that when he wrote to the, to the believers there at Philippi in his letter. When he said, you know, he said, I long to, be, to go and to be with Christ, which is far better. But I realize that for right now, it's, it's really better that I stay here with you and help you. Now, here's a man who'd been beaten up, imprisoned, all kinds of problems. And he's looking forward to the day that he's with Jesus. But he says, you know, but until then, I know the Lord's got a work for me to do. And perhaps that should be our attitude as well. There is one other image, and that's what I call the preeminent image of God. And when we talk about the preeminent image of God, we're talking about the Lord Jesus Himself. In John chapter 14, 
Philip looked at Jesus and said, if you'll just show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. And Jesus looked right at Philip and said what? You've seen me. You've seen the Father. And notice the passage there. A couple of them I put in your notes from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The sun <clears throat> is the radiance. The radiance is the outshining, kind of like the, the rays. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. You want to know what God's like? How, how, how do you understand what God's like? God is spirit. And, you know, I can't relate to a spirit, so what does God do? God takes on human flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and comes and lives among us. You say, this is the one who tells me what God is like. And uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, and this, this is a verse you can talk about probably for weeks. He, and the referent is Christ, He is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible. I mean, it, it, it just it almost seems inconceivable. We think about, you know, there's oxygen in this room, and the oxygen, fortunately, is invisible. How do you design an image of oxygen that's invisible? You say, well, you make some of these little scientific things. We've got the little, got the little golf balls, and you stick them all together. But the point is, is that Jesus is. You want to know what God's like? You look at Jesus. Now let's uh, let's let's keep looking. The point is, <clears throat> and the point of our session today is, we're considering the fact that humanity is flawed terribly by sin, and there's there's nobody that's that's left out. Notice the argument that Paul makes in Romans chapter three. What he's doing here is he's he's making an argument for the universality of sin and the universality of guilt. doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Everybody is in the same boat. We're all guilty, and we're all guilty going back to what Adam did in the garden. You said, well, that's not fair. Well, may not be, but that's the way it is. I can't, we can't deal with the way we wish things were. You have to deal with what you got on your plate right now. Romans 3, beginning at verse 9, he affirms universal guilt. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? <clears throat> Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. We all got the same problem. And then he gives proof of that beginning at verse 10 through verse 18. And what he does here is he quotes primarily from the Psalms. And here's your proof that we're all in, 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 in a mess. As it is written... There is no one righteous, not even one. Nobody anywhere. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All, how many is all? That's everybody. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. That word worthless means unprofitable or useless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. And then he talks about throats and tongues and lips and just and he just he demonstrates how all of this is uh, is true of us. In verse eighteen, he finally says, uh, "This this disregard that we have for God shows up uh, in the fact that there is no fear of God." And whether you want to say that's awe or reverence or whatever, that's fine. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
And then he assigns this guilt. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, that is in God's sight, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. See, there are some people say, you say, well, you know, if one of these days, assuming that you get up there to the pearly gates and you're knocking on the door and somebody says, why should I let you in? Incidentally, this will never happen. But you knocking on the door and someone were to say, why should I let you in? And you say, well, man, I've kept all the Ten Commandments. See, Paul is saying here, that is not possible. You can't do it. He says, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Why? Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. <clears throat> Remember, Paul talked about this, and I think it was, uh, well, it was, uh, it was later in Romans, and he mentions it also in Philippians, where he says, you know, as far as a, being a Pharisee, he says, I was perfect. He said, man, I, I, you know, I crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. Doesn't mean he was sinless, but it meant when he did the wrong thing that he knew exactly the right sacrifice to offer at exactly the right time, and he just, he really walked the way he was supposed to. But he said, but there was one law. He said, there was one law that got me. And he said it was the one about coveting. See, you know, adultery and stealing and these other things are generally are things that generally take place without now, Jesus talked about how we can do those things in our hearts and drove that point home. But Paul says, you know, this covenant thing takes place inside of me. And because it takes place inside of me, I realized that there was something inside of me that was fighting against God. Now, what was it? Well, it was that old sin nature that he had inherited from Adam. And he said, all of a sudden, I realized that I'd already broken the law because I had coveted. And remember what James said? He says, if we break the law in one point, what? We're guilty of the whole thing. And the whole purpose of the law was not to save us. It was to show us how guilty we are because in seeing how guilty we are, you say, Lord, I can't measure up. And the Lord said, that's right, you can't. He said, Lord, have mercy on me. And it drives us to Christ where we fall down on our knees before Him and say, oh God, have mercy on me because Christ kept the law perfectly. And we're going to see how that works here in just a moment. You see, God, the, the law of God accepts no excuses. We're in a mess and the law of God can't help us. All it does is say, yes, you did this and therefore you've got to die. It can diagnose our sin, but it can't do anything to cure us of our sin. Notice there's a, a little summary that I've, I've written for you there in your notes uh, the summary of, of the apostle's argument. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is the gist of what he said in this passage. All people without exception are sinful and have no righteousness that's acceptable to God. Furthermore, they are incapable of any action that would make themselves acceptable to God. Number two, therefore, all people without exception stand condemned before God. See, we're in a mess. This all goes back to Adam, and we're all in the same mess that Adam was in. Now, how did God deal with it in Adam's case? Well, God came looking for Adam. Adam was hiding. 
along with the woman. Adam's hiding. God confronts him. And before it's all over, what is it that God does for Adam and for the woman? What does he make them? He makes them clothes out of animal skins. He does. You see, notice, uh, God's only solution for human sin, first of all, it was prefigured in the Garden of Eden, that passage from Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Notice, didn't make it out of, didn't make it out of wool, didn't make it out of mohair, didn't make it out of uh, cotton, didn't make it out of any of those kinds of things. He made it out of skin, which meant an animal had to die. Again, this is a picture of what was going to happen millennia later when His Son, the Lord Jesus, would go to the cross. And throughout the Old Testament, it's just promised over and over and over and over. You, the psalmist talks about it. Moses writes about it. That God would raise up the prophet one day. The psalmist writes about it. Isaiah writes about it. About the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. The one who would come and take away the sins of his people. Over and over and over and over this is talked about. And then finally, when we come to the Gospels, we see there in John chapter 1 verse 29, we see old John who was the baptizer. And he's working down there at the Jordan River just baptizing folks and giving the scribes and the Pharisees a hard time, saying, you boys need to get out of here. You don't have any part in all this stuff. You need to repent. And this particular day, this Jesus of Nazareth comes walking down toward the Jordan River where John is baptizing. And it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does the lamb take away sin? Only by dying. Again, it was, a, it was a picture of what ultimately Christ was going to do. And it's proclaimed by the apostles. Notice the passage there in the right-hand column of your notes from Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. In fact, let's go back up to verse 19. <clears throat> just skip that little part that's between the brackets there. Let's just read it in its, in its entirety. Notice what it says. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. You remember that story Jesus told about the, uh, about the banquet? And uh, it was a wedding feast. And one of the things they did in those days was when you gave a big wedding feast is that the, the, the person, the, the host, would provide the wedding garments for the folks to wear. And everybody came in, they were all dressed up in their wedding garments. And, but there was this one guy who showed up. He didn't have a wedding garment. He decided he'd just come his own way. He didn't need that garment. He'd just show up for the wedding. And the host came up to him and said, Friend, where, where is your wedding garment? And it says that the man said nothing. He had no response. See, when we come in our own righteousness, that's what Paul is saying here, every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. We got nothing to say. We, don't, we can't use our own righteousness. We need a foreign righteousness. We need a righteousness provided by somebody else. 
Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What do we see when you and I look in our spiritual mirror? Do we see ourselves as the fairest of all, as the way the old queen did in Grimm's fairy tale? Do we see ourselves as an ugly duckling? Or do we see ourselves as a person who is being changed from glory to glory to glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord? <clears throat> the reality is, is that sin has permeated us. It's in every part of our being. That's what total depravity means. doesn't mean we're as bad as we can be, but it does mean that everything about us is touched and tainted in some way by sin. And because of that, it's marred the image of God. And no amount of cosmetics that we can come up with. More I fix myself up, you know, I get my face, I get myself a facelift and try to get rid of these wrinkles up here in my forehead and uh, you know, all these uh, just starting to sag under here. I could get no 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 no. Doesn't work. Nothing like that can make me presentable to God. It requires some sort of radical help from outside of me and outside of you in order to be changed. And it shows us how great the effects of Adam's sin really are. But as great as they are, the effects of Christ's obedience are even greater. Adam's sin led to condemnation and to the rule of death for everybody in the human race. But Christ's obedience led to justification. That's what we're going to be talking about the next couple of weeks. And the rule of grace and life for all those who belong to Him. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.